It's 1001 LA Nights. This is LA Rivers with you. Welcome to season two. Get cozy, get comfy, and enjoy being read to and hearing a fabulous interview. I say that every episode, but it is. It's fabulous to meet writers and talk with them and speak with them about their work. Uh, today's guest is Jeff Mack, otherwise known as the Dark Lord himself. That's right. Now, it's not quite Halloween, but it is around the corner. And uh, you can't ever be spooky too early in the year, right? And to pair up with the interview, I'm reading a bit of a short story I'm calling Plucky. It was untitled until I finished recording it for this episode. And uh, Plucky is a short story about a young artist, a young woman, um, who has a very strange and surreal experience at an art workshop on surrealism that leads to a pretty magnificent experience of of finding who she really is. And so, of course, it features Granny Annie because it's part of the anthology that I'm creating for my friend. And it is the second to the last short story. It's almost done. Um, Realized I had not completely edited the book. That's why I do these cold readings, is especially of my own work. It will show me what I need to change. And uh, I've used a word one too many times and it irritates me. So as soon as I'm done recording this little segment, I'm going to go edit that one or two words out just to get rid of it. But other than that, um, I think you're going to very much enjoy this episode. You're writers, you get it. You're like, oh my God, I have to go fix that. But anyway, you're going to really enjoy the interview with Jeff Mack. It's all about dark lordiness and a little bit of anthropology and what it's like to be a bestseller in five different categories over a couple of months, which is kind of fun. So... Uh, I also promised a story about a squirrel. So before we get to the interview, um, the dark knows no bounds and there is this very aggressive squirrel that is here in this domicile that I am at. And back in July, I noticed as I was sitting in the shade trying to cool off drinking some lemonade that things kept hitting my head. And at first I thought it was a tree but, you know, just dropping leaves or whatever in the heat, and it wasn't. It was a squirrel, a large red squirrel, um, hurling with great aim broken macadamia nutshells onto my head. And um, I I was like, I tried to shoo it off, and it just kind of shook its fist at me and did it again. And so the squirrel has kind of become my nemesis because it beams me like whenever I walk around it like lays in wait it's like Reepicheep and if you don't know who Reepicheep is read C.S. Lewis and Arnie books but this thing is ornery uh, it will become a character someday because it is it's posture and, and it's guile and you know I'll shake my fist at it it shakes its fist back and then it beams me again it's pretty funny uh, but anyway So, uh, from the Dark Lord of Squirrels to the Dark Lord himself, I hope you enjoy the interview 
and stay around to the end of the podcast. There's a message you really need to hear if you're a creative. And now for your listening pleasure, I have the great, terrible, insidious, hideous, most maleficent and most terrifying Jeff Mock, Dark Lord. Oh, your dark lordiness, how are you today? Well, I'm a little more in fear of my life now that I feel like the Wizard of Oz and Maleficent might both come after me for infringing on their trademarks. But that's okay. I, I get the adrenaline going. I'm, um, Maleficent has quite a temper pretty much all the time. So um, if she burns down another one of my castles, I'll just deal with it. Outside of that, it's a great day so far. Awesome. So, um, fall is right around the corner, and people need good, spooky, spine-tingling tomes to pour through. Let's talk about yours. Nonsense. Authors hate talking about their books. I can't imagine what you could possibly mean by that. <laughs> right, because no one ever wants anyone to read anything they've ever written. Oh, uh, no. So, I love the title, There and Never Ever Back Again, Diary of a Dark Lord. Um, that, that's fabulous. There and Never Ever Back Again. I've, I've had a few journeys like that. Um, talk, talk about your title. What, what's up with this diary? Well, it came to me that there's never really been, or at least when I was writing it, I thought there hadn't particularly been a book written from the point of view of the Dark Lord in a Sauron-style situation. I've had the idea of writing from the Dark Lord's point of view for probably since I read The Sword of Shannara. Shannara? Shannara? Yeah. I've only ever read it. I've not seen it on television, so I don't know how people actually pronounce it. This was some 30 years ago. It does turn out that there have been some other really wonderful books written by people who are unsure about the title Dark Lord, but none that I know of written by an actual fantasy Dark Lord, and I kind of I kind of wanted to take a look at the way that being might view the hero's journey, since the hero's journey is, of course, both as a literary device, wherein the hero becomes powerful enough to defeat the enemy or the problem, and as a direct situation where the enemy and the problem is you, and the hero is slowly getting closer and closer to your death, or your probable death at least, I thought it would be interesting to go through the Dark Lord's thought processes and uh, that perhaps we could use some fantasy books that considered a little bit of the metaphysics of magic, reality, darkness, light, the uh, dining habits of unicorns, and a little less, uh, you know, just uh, describing great battles. There's uh, only one great battle in the book, and it's quite at the very end. Nice. As all battles should be, really. I think so. 
Yeah, you got to lead up to something. I mean, I'm now quietly and surreptitiously scratching out notes for a story that takes place after the great battle is over and everyone is dead. Nice. That, I will that, get it to you. All right. So the book came out in June when I disappeared off the interwebs. Um, and it has, um, it's done very well. Congratulations, oh, dark lordiness. Um, what's been some of the highlights of, of getting your book up and out there and people actually purchasing, if not reading it? Gosh, it's been, I'm looking for words that don't start with lovely. <laughs> it's been incredible. Uh, you know, between this and the villainous children's book, um, this book has been, I think, what you might call a quote-unquote actual bestseller, although I'm not sure precisely how one would define that these days. But if you include things that, uh, if you include things like uh, new release bestsellers, I've been an Amazon number one bestseller five times in the past two months, which is five more times than I ever expected in my entire life. <laughs> I love that. There was a day and a half when the children's book, uh, <clears throat> a big bad wolf's villainly alphabet, uh, dominated first the children's wolf fiction category, and then even more implausibly, the children's mammal book category. Wow. Yes. Wow, that's huge. It's, um, it was a, a gloriously surreal experience. And it's, it's been really interesting looking at this book. Uh, you know, part of the process, and I think at this point it is really sort of a defining characteristic, is that there are quite a number of people who specifically did not read the book and are angry at me who left a series of reviews. And I don't mean that to say, oh, my bad reviews are things people should discard, just that in looking at the way writers get feedback, it is, it's not a thing that happens often. I'm not even talking about this in terms of, oh goodness, poor me, people are mad and there are these reviews that aren't real. It's much more along the lines of all the writers that I see on Twitter, all the writers that I talk to at events, talk about being shaped by both their good critiques and their bad critiques. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting as I try to consider, well, as I guess I try to weigh reality. Um, I suppose everyone figures that some of their friends are likely to leave a couple of five-star reviews, even if they don't absolutely love the book, a total five stars. Maybe they secretly love it like four and a half stars, but they also like you. And that's something you probably should take into account. And then uh, you get things like, one of my favorite reviews, um, in fact, one of the only reviews that Amazon took down, uh, spelled my name differently twice. And the entire review was, if I can recall it, uh, I don't know much about this Jeff Mack, M-A-C-K-E character, but based on this book, this Jeff Mack, M-A-C-H guy is kind of a jerk. And that was the whole review. 
Wow. Yeah. I knew I could put that one aside. Right. Then then there's, um, you know, people, there's these other reviews that I think are both real, whatever real would mean, side by side, um, where someone says, one star couldn't get through it, didn't think it had a point, and the next person said, this is so insightful. There's so many points made here. And I'm just like, what even is the world? How do I take this? What am I supposed to do with this? You know, I've actually had really good advice throughout my writing life, and it's never read the reviews. (laughs) (laughs) Like, never, ever read your reviews. Um, One, even from a literary critic standpoint, people have their preferences, and there's a lot of, like, um, I don't know, strong beliefs uh, in, in what writing should be or shouldn't be or stories, etc. And when it comes to the public leaving reviews, uh, I'll just, because you're the Dark Lord and, you know, all of 20 people will listen to this episode, I'm just going to say it outright. I, I don't trust the public with anything. So why would I trust them with a review? Um, <laughs> evil laughter. <laughs> there you go. That's a good evil laugh, but we should expect nothing less, right? Um, yeah, it, it, I love that that it did hit the bestsellers, and you know, screw screw the reviews one way or the other, because um, yes, those friends who love us well they're not really helpful either because they just say it's kind of like your mom you know like my mom anyway I can't draw worth anything and I'd make a stick figure and she'd be like oh my god you're like Renoir you know and I'd be like no I suck so (laughs) (laughs) this is not helpful (laughs) did not improve my game mom um so you have some other exciting things going on besides, I mean, we can't ever rest on our laurels. There's always more conquests, right? So there's something exciting happening. You, you mentioned in the pre-interview that you've got an audio book coming out. Oh, actually, it just came out three days ago. Uh, three? Um, I have turned off my phone so as not to be distracted, so I don't know what day it is. It's a day when I woke up and I started writing, which is every day. <laughs> Um, so it it just came out a couple of days ago Uh, it's read by the extraordinary jordan reader that is his real name nice and uh this is his first fiction book and uh it's people seem to quite like it on audible people it's um well i've got audible credits i'm gonna go get that thing well that makes my day um, well there you go I, uh, I went to school for theater and anthropology. I remember that one of the things I wrote, I, when I learned about writing things like collaborative works, like a play, when I was about 14 and I started trying to write plays, was that you could either try to be a control freak and try to envision everything a certain way and then try to make it happen that way, which seemed to me, even then, as kind of a recipe for high blood pressure and for some people it's some people's style i totally get that or you can just find people that you like who have interesting visions and Mm -hmm. see if you can work with them and 
I, I had no idea the kind of um, voice that Jordan would bring to this. He suggested a couple of ways of approaching the book and ended up, uh, I'm often sort of laid back, especially in my speech. And this speech is very, very focused and very, very direct and very, very much like this. And it's uh, nothing like any, uh, any way the book was read in my head, but it's just turned out so marvelously. It's been such an interesting and passionate take on the book. And uh, to read the book, to, Jordan is reading primarily from the Dark Lord's diary with little excerpts from the Chosen One's diary. And the Chosen One is, if anything, uh, this is not a spoiler, someone who probably starts out a little bit cynical and then gets a whole lot more cynical as the book goes on. It's interesting to hear the changes in Jordan's voice as the chosen one begins to realize that they are not the first chosen one, and that all the other chosen ones so far are dead, and that if they die, the white wizard will just get another orphan. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, I love that when, when we spoke before and you talked about that, that um, I think it's really insightful to put something like that in there as a subject. Um, and I love that you were uh, studying anthropology. That was my minor. Anthropology. Oh. Anthropology. Uh, you know what they say about anthropologists. We just keep talking. <laughs> but uh, there's something about readers bringing stories to life. It really, um, as a reader, there's nothing more gratifying when an author goes, wow, I didn't hear it that way in my head, but you made it come alive in unexpected and delightful ways. And that, that is a huge, um, I think that's the biggest compliment to a reader. So, um, and I look forward to hearing his work because, uh, and your book, because um, anymore I listen to a lot of books because my eyes get tired. So I save my eyes for writing. Um, I have a retinal detachment and I'm the same way. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, me on my left eye, I have that. So right eye is good. It's just middle aged. Um, if you had one thing you really wanted to leave your readers with or wanted them to take away from your writing, what would that be? You should immediately empty out your bank accounts and send them to the Dark Lord in case he might write something else good. <laughs> um, and outside of that, there's something I've heard and don't really like, which is people saying, well, every villain is a hero in their own mind. And I definitely would like people to ask a couple more questions about what makes a hero and what makes a villain. But I don't think that every villain is a hero in their own minds. In fact, without getting too much into the present day world, but it's impossible and probably not a good idea to try to write without being affected by the world around you. Mm -hmm. We're in a world that is often so very eager to 
divide things up into the heroes and the villains, and especially because it's sometimes a little easier to find, to find and categorize and, in our culture, attempt to cancel the villains. And people like to do that on the basis of just the idea that it's a good story that a certain person or a certain thing or a certain action is villainous and a villainy. And one could try to fight that through, I guess, a bunch of well-reasoned essays or impassioned political argument. I personally would much rather fight that through something that's going to be fun, whether or not the fight itself succeeds. It's just embracing villainy. If we're going to go around calling people villains when it might not be justified, in other words, making the term villain a little bit meaningless, let's give some meaning to the term villain, at least when it comes to the worlds of our imagination. And Mm -hmm. let's embrace some villainy and see if we can make that villainy as interesting, as iconoclastic, as free, as useful, and God's willing, as funny as possible. Right. True. If you're going to call me a villain, I'm going to show you a villain. How's that? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think in this world, um, it's, it's very polarized and people lose sight of, of, um, it's kind of like when you play like D and D, sometimes the paladins are real jerks, you know, I mean, they can be just as bad as, as the bad guy. And, um, I think it's really important to to pick your battles um, and how you battle. So thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate you coming back on, even though we didn't air the first interview because I fell off the internet. It really hurts when you fall off. There's almost no bottom. It's like an abyss. You just go, ah, for a while, and then I crawled back up. It took a while. But I do appreciate speaking with you again. Um, and this time the listeners get to hear you, which that's a great thing. Um, so the audiobook is out. You can get that on Audible and you can find Jeff on Amazon. And if you're going to leave a review, you can leave a useful one. And um, <laughs> you can find him on Twitter. Uh, let, let me get it. Let me get it. Hang on. I've got you here. Dark Lords Villains and Monsters at Dark Lord Journal. Thank you again for coming on the show. And uh, I look forward to that, uh, listening to the book on Autumn. Really hope you enjoy it. Thank you for having me. I'll let you know before I leave a bad review. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care. You too. Thank you. This is the third segment that isn't the third segment. Just letting all of you who are new to the podcast know that the readings here are cold. That means you'll find flubs and gaffes and little mistakes here and there. And it's because this is an organic reading. I also read uh, to see where I need to edit. And so sometimes it's not the perfect writing. These are all rough drafts of my own work. 
um, as I work through them. Well, they're not rough drafts, but they could be first edits or second revisions as I move through the process of putting this book together. It's kind of fun to read it and help the, the stories mature. So just giving you a heads up on that. Also, if you would like to become a patron on Patreon, you're most welcome to do so. You can go to patreon.com forward slash 1001 LA Nights. Without further ado, here is Plucky, which didn't have a title until I finished recording the little snippet. It is not the whole short story. It's just a little teaser. And uh, it's a little surreal. I felt it was a very appropriate story to go with our interview today. Thank you for listening. Okay, so this is a short reading. It's a cold reading. So this is not an audiobook. This is me reading you a story. I want you to sit back and relax, slip into the tub, grab a glass of wine, sit on the couch. And uh, for those of you who are tub listeners, I appreciate that. That is high praise. So without further ado, from the untitled short story with the character based on a lovely Twitter user who wanted to be called Drew in this short story. Phew, I knew I overloaded that thing. Drew grunted, hauling the overstuffed duffel bag out of the truck. She set it on the gravel and reached in to grab the small backpack that held her clothes and toiletries. Comparing the bags, she snickered and muttered, A girl's gotta have her priorities. Practically skipping lopsided from the weight of her art supplies, Drew headed into Carla's gallery. I hope I'm not too late, Drew blurted out as she entered the sparse industrial showroom, the vaulted ceiling causing her outside voice to echo cheerfully. Her presence was met by a dozen pair of eyes. As the group of artists turned to see Drew in her best flannel, chain-laden jeans, and purple Doc Martens, Hey, you made it. Carla's strong alto drawled smoothly across the room. Let's get your stuff put up. Then we'll do the intros. Drew's lavender lips spread into a joyful smile, making her hazel gray eyes sparkle. I'm so excited to be here. A few of the artists grinned back. Others merely nodded. Carla beamed back as she sauntered to guide Drew to her digs for the weekend. Only five foot two and maybe a hundred pounds dripping wet. Carla was a force of nature and a legend in the Pacific Northwest art scene. The Matsky Gallery was her baby. Ten acres of park cleared and sculpted by her own efforts with little or no help from anyone until it was mostly done. Incorporating the striking natural beauty of old-growth trees and stumps with modern sculptures crafted by some of the most recognized artists in the world. Then the gallery itself a warehouse-style industrial building standing as a testament to human intrusion on the natural world. Known for showcasing the best of the Pacific Northwest, 
The paintings and interior sculptures ranged from hyped-up dark cubism to colorful woodblock prints and funky glass-sporting fish careening out of clear pillars. Drew breathed in the expectant atmosphere and mentally crossed her fingers that something she painted this weekend might just end up on the walls here. Or Carla's fridge. I'd be good with her fridge. Drew grinned at the thought of one of her paintings hung by a banana fridge magnet on Carla's fridge. Hey, what's so funny? Carla asked, grinning up at Drew. Shaking her head, Drew laughed. I was just thinking funny thoughts. Well, that's a great skill. Gotta keep yourself amused. It's a crazy world. Carla led the way out of the gallery to the small cabin that would house Drew and another artist for the weekend. It was dusk, and the hazy orange light was now peach tones, turning the giant fir trees into silhouettes. Drew took in a deep lungful of oxygenated air and felt her body tingle with release. Okay, you're rooming with Bobby in here. Whichever bed is clear is yours. Did you remember your sleeping bag? Carla waved a hand as they entered the building. Ah, damn, I forgot. Drew's face grew hot from embarrassment from the embarrassed blush turning her cheeks puce. Carla's big laugh echoed off the cabin walls. It's no big deal. Artists are rarely organized. I should know. There's sheets and pillows and other stuff in that cupboard. Deal with it later. It's time to get moving back inside. Just dump your stuff and we'll get back into the gallery. Drew dumped her backpack and duffel bag on the bed, then followed Carla back out into the now illuminated gallery. Darkness had settled over the forest, and the light pouring out of the gallery windows streamed into the gloom like a welcome home beacon. Carla called everyone's attention when the two entered the building and brought the group into a lar- into the large center room. Six artists stood in a circle, Carla introducing each person, singing praises. Jack was known for his glow-in-the-dark satirical creations. Bobby only painted crows as subjects. Jim was an abstract painter from Portland. Charles, a surrealist who worked with mixed media. Danny was for her photo was known for her photorealistic depictions of women in compromising positions. Chris was eclectic and whimsical with his brushes. Each of the artists had at least a decade or more on Drew. She studied each person trying to stay up with Carla's introductions, knowing she'd never keep it at all keep it all straight. She was almost startled when Carla said her name. Drew's work is an interesting mix of simplicity of subject composition juxtaposed by complex and contrasting color use. The artists all nodded, appreciative of one another, and stayed silent waiting for Carla to continue. This weekend, you're going to stretch your composition muscles. Choose a person. She looked at Bobby and smiled broadly. Or a crow, if you're Bobby and then set them in a place or event that seems unreal. Carla continued to expound on the exercise and led the artist to her personal studio, pulling out reference books on surrealism. Everyone picked some bedtime reading material. Study up tonight, and I'll see you at 5.30 a.m. for breakfast. Bobby snatched a book featuring a crow in an overcoat on the cover, clutching it like someone might fight her for it. Drew nodded at her, remarking, Covington is amazing, don't you think? She gets as, she doesn't get as much airtime as Dolly or Marguerite, but I love her work. Bobby gave Drew a strange look. 
Covington is a she. I'd never heard of her. I just saw the crow on the cover. Drew's lavender lips spread to show a toothy grin, and her hazel eyes sparkled with bubbling enthusiasm. Words rushed out of her mouth like rapid fire. Oh, yes, she's really old now, but one of the best. I did a whole course of study on her when I was doing my MFA. Oh, you're an art school artist, Bobby sniffed, then clutched the book to her chest and left Drew standing there puzzled. A deep voice rumbled behind her. Jealous much? Drew jumped startled and a nervous giggle escaped. You're a stealthy fellow. She turned and had to look up to see the bearded Chris towering over her, beard sparkling with gray and silver in the studio lights. Drew craned her neck to meet his gaze. Chris's brown eyes crinkled at the corners in well-practiced smile lines. Some people get jealous easy. Don't mind her. Where'd you do your MFA? Pacific Northwest College of Art, she smiled. I finished up last year. Oh, are you from Portland? Drew shook her head. Nah, Stanwood. How'd you end up there? Chris's eyebrows knitted in confusion. Drew's too loud laugh escaped before she could stop it. <laughs> Would you believe a guy? Still laughing at herself, Drew gave Chris the very, very short version of a very long story. Broke up right after I got here. <laughs> and I almost went to L.A., but I met Carla and kind of decided to stick around. Well, sometimes fate is weird that way. Chris replied and waved a book on Chirico, indicating his way out to the door. I hope you find something cool to inspire you. Drew nodded and turned back to the table covered in books. She closed her eyes and let tension ease out of her tired body and let her hand wander over book covers. Using her intuition was a favorite game. It took away her intellectual bias and allowed open, unfettered creativity to take over. When she opened her eyes, her hand rested on a cover sporting an image of a sandy expanse, boasting an elongated tuning fork. A corner of her lavender lips turned up, and she chuckled to herself and whispered in a mock ominous tone, Oh, Tangi, we meet again. Waving her prize to the two other artists still scrying the table for inspiration, she headed to the cabin to read up and absorb Tangi's work with light. The high-pitched shriek pierced the forest evening air with terror. Cabin doors flew open, shafts of light piercing the moonless dark. Shouts of, hey, what's going on? were met by Drew's hysterical laughter. I can't work like this! A woman's alto voice scolded loudly in an odd muffled tone. It was met with more laughter and the pounding of panicked footsteps. Carla's voice called out deep and sharp. Is everyone okay? Drew wanted to stop laughing. She really did, but the deep laugh, deep laughs kept rising from her belly, causing tears and choking. Waving a hand and trying to breathe, Drew bent over to hold herself upright by placing hands on knees when her cabin mates stomped to the doorway. Light streaming around the short, curvaceous woman made a terrible image with a human-sized crow head perched on her shoulders, I cannot work like this, the crow head repeated imperiously from the doorway. Oh, for fuck's sake, a male voice muttered. What the hell are you doing? Carla, we need to talk, the crow woman demanded imperiously again. 
A bass voice chuckled. Another female voice giggled in the dark. Carla's sonorous laughter matched Drew's and Cadence. Someone said, You okay? Bobby's voice shouted through the crow mask. I am not okay. I can't work like this. Stomping her slipper-covered foot in ridiculous emphasis, Carla now standing by Drew, laughing in tandem until she managed to gain control long enough to choke out an annoyed Bobby. What do you want me to do? I don't want this tattooed weirdo art school snob in my cabin. The crow's beak moved as Bobby spoke. Carla fought back a cackle and pulled Drew's arm up to help her stand upright, the two inhaling sharply. Drew wiping at her eyes as she exhaled a loud ohm sound, provoking a male voice to chuckle unseen in the dark night. Bobby, really, what did you expect? You're wearing a crow's head. Bobby flung her head back. The crow's head wobbled before it flew off her head, making a strange thud as it hit the cabin floor. I was composing, Carla. If you can't take my art seriously, then maybe I should leave. Hands on hip, Bobby glowered imperiously. Carla chuckled. Bobby, knock it off. Drew, grab your things. You can crash on my couch. Carla moved up the steps, making Bobby step back from the door. Drew followed Carla's lead, grabbed her bags, and tucked the book under her arm. Go into the gallery. I'll be there in a minute. Carla directed as Drew left the cabin, then poked her head out and hollered, It's all good, guys. I've got this. Drew marched back to the gallery, stomach muscles aching from panicked laughing fit, lavender lips turning up in a silly grin. Well, it's a surrealist workshop, Drew muttered to herself. Inside the gallery, Drew plopped her bags on the cement floor. No chairs to be found. Drew settled on the cold cement and leaned against the bare white wall and cracked open the book on Tanguy. Mesmerized by the elongated images, Drew studied the use of light by the artist. He'd used it to great effect to make the ridiculous credible. Nodding as if in conversation to the artist, Drew flipped pages, stopping here and there to read explanatory text. The door to the gallery squeaked, announcing Carla's entry. Hey... Sorry about that. If Bobby wasn't local, I'd have sent her packing. Drew looked up from the book and smiled. It's okay, that was hilarious. Carla chuckled. Yeah, I knew a crow's max would scare the crap out of someone. Drew shook her head. Right? (laughs) When she shouted, I can't work like this, I lost it. I just lost it. Carla shook her head and grinned. I'll refund you a bit if you want. After all, you paid for a bed, not my couch. Drew smiled up at Carla and offered a hand for helping getting up off the cement gallery floor. I don't know. Do what you want. I get to be teacher's pet this way. I think Bobby did me a favor. That's a great attitude. Carla glanced at the book in Drew's hand. Tangy. Cool. Why? Drew poked out her bottom lip and gave a shrug. It just seemed like the one to pick. His work is pretty empty compared to your style. What's the appeal to you? Drew thought a moment. It's clean. You're right, it's sparse. But I think it's his use of light to make the unreal real. That's very appealing to me right now. 
Interesting. I look forward to seeing what you come up with this week. Carlo leaned down and grabbed one of Drew's bags. Let's get you resettled, and I'll let you get back to studying. Hey, did you eat? No, I was late getting out of the store. Carlo grinned. Well, I'll order a pizza and we'll grab a bottle of wine when we go to town. That's the least I can do to make up for Bobby. Jasper rolled his round yellow eyes and turned to walk out of the bookstore with a flick of his tail. Hey, you don't get to go outside, Drew shouted at the fat tabby and stumbled over her Doc Martens trying to catch up. Too late. The door wasn't latched, and the cat deftly pawed his way out. Drew moaned as she picked up her pace to grab the cat. She didn't need to get fired because the tetchy feline decided to take a walkabout. Jasper wasn't on the run, though. She could see his tail twitching as he made, made it up the brick path to the sidewalk at a slow saunter. Flinging the door open a little too fast, Drew popped out of the threshold to be greeted by a murder of crows muttering and cawing. Jasper was sitting on the sidewalk now. Oh, Drew, 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 you're in for it now, the cat chided. You pissed off the crows. You know better. Then the cat sauntered down the street towards the yarn store. Jasper, come on. I don't need to get fired. Drew shouted at the cat, then mused that it was strange he was talking. Her footsteps clumping on the pavement. It felt like she was running in wet cement. She couldn't seem to catch the sauntering cat. Jasper stopped and watched Drew, tail twitching like a metronome. You won't. I have a, I'll have a little word with Chris. By the way, there's something behind you. Drew glanced over her shoulder and screamed. A short female figure with the head of a crow sporting a bright yellow felted cloche with blue blue roses stood hands on hips. Mouth gaping in horror, Drew stepped backwards, slowly wanting to run, but afraid to turn her back on the creature. Music started to play, the driving guitar familiar, but Drew couldn't afford to waste time playing mental name that tune. She kept walking backwards, now patting her jeans to see if she had something, anything, that could serve as a weapon. Nothing. Cursing under her breath, Drew stepped backwards with increasing speed, Jasper called out in a bored tone. Might want to go into the yarn store. That's where I'm going. Drew looked over her shoulder, realizing the crow creature hadn't moved. She just stood there, hands on hips, tapping her yellow puddle, puddle boot laden foot. Turning on her heel, Drew scrambled the last few steps to the yarn store, fumbling the handle. She jumped inside, then slammed the door shut with a bang. Breathing heavy, heart thudding, Drew was certain this couldn't be real, but it felt real. It sounded real. Her heart pounding in her chest was real. A nagging sense of something she knew but couldn't remember was poking her awareness. Where's that music coming from? She muttered. Jasper announced in a low drawl, Our fearless heroine seems to have arrived, ladies. Drew looked to her right and spotted the yellow-eyed tabby, in full leg-up grooming pose in the middle of the large oak table. The owner, Sirku, seated at the far end, was knitting with some kind of spiked metal wire. Drew stared at the woman's leather gloves, protecting her aged hands from the sharp points. She'd never seen anyone knit metal before. Next to Sirku sat Patty, the middle-aged former firefighter, 
She was hand-sewing sequins on a crocheted hat. The woman gave Drew a serious nod and went back to work. Birdsong filled the room. Granny Annie turned from her seat, facing Sirkus, rosy cheeks bright and eyes shining. You've got quite a problem on your hands, dear. What are you going to do about it? Then Annie continued whistling sweet bird songs, which clashed against the driving guitar strains, blasting in Drew's ears. <laughs> Does no one um, find this a bit ridiculous? Drew asked as a hysterical laugh began to form in her belly. Oh, don't start with that now. It will undo my work, Annie muttered, then resumed whistling. Look, pumpkin, Patty interjected with a slurred edge to her voice. You pissed off crow woman. Now you gotta banish her. Huh? Drew couldn't take it all in. You're the chosen one, Sirku said, not looking up from the spiked piece she was knitting. The hell I am. I'm not a main character. Hell no to that. I'm more of a plucky sidekick. Jasper looked up from licking his raised leg and see where that's landed you. Annie turned, turned, whistling clever bird songs, and held out a shopping bag to Drew, nodding at the bag furiously, urging Drew to take it. And Annie licked her lips and muttered, Just take it, you'll need it, then resumed the trilling and chirping of swallows on a spring day. Drew accepted the bag. Peering inside, she made a face. Bubble mix? Still whistling, Granny Annie nodded then turned back around in her seat. Drew removed the large blue plastic bottle of bubble soap. There was nothing remarkable about the bottle. It was a value brand from the local pharmacy. Turning the bottle around, seeking insights, Drew shook her head completely baffled. There was a humanoid crow outside, a hundred-plus murder of crows growling. Bubbles didn't really seem like they were going to help much. The music grew more dramatic. Drew looked up from the bottle at the table. Anyone want to help me out here? And where is that music coming from? Annie turned around, still whistling, but waved her hand around in a strange fluid motion. Shh, I'm counting the row. Sirku chided, then muttered numbers under her breath. Patty flourished the hat with sequins and tossed it to Drew. Put it on. It's protection. Jasper purred. Drew. You are the only one who can send it back. What? Why me? Drew wasn't about to go out and face the creepy crow creature. Who knows? Sirku muttered. Give me a second and you can put this on. Drew arched an eyebrow. Sure. She put on the red sequin floppy crocheted beanie. Tingles ran down her arms. Patty smiled. Oh, good. It's working. Jasper winked and patted a paw at a loose sequin on the table. Strong juju, he drawled. Sirku got up from the table and called Drew to her. Let's see how it looks. Um, that looks sharp, Drew said, worried about the sharp metal spikes. Well, then don't fin flinch when I put it on you, the old Finnish woman growled. She carefully arranged the spiked metal knitted scarf around Drew's neck. Yup, that'll do. Sirku said, nodding approval. Okay, so now what? Drew asked. Jasper responded, send them back. How the hell do I do that? Drew asked, exasperated. Look, 
you have protection. You have your weapons. Get out there. I don't think Annie can keep it up much longer. Jasper replied, standing and arching his back. Weapons? You mean the bubbles? Drew brandished the large blue bottle. You're kidding me. Only one way to find out, Jasper responded. Annie's whistles grew faint. Just go blow the bubbles at them, she wheezed. My asthma's kicking up. Drew made a face, then marched to the door, arms tingling. She reached out for the door handle and noticed her willow tattoo was glowing. Then the TV character chimed in. Hey, I was just a plucky sidekick too, and I saved the day. You got this. Just don't get veiny. It's not good to get all veiny. Drew nodded to her tattoo. Got it. Veiny bad. Pulling her hand back from the door, Drew unscrewed the cap on the bubble mix, then burst out of the threshold brandishing the bubble wand. Hundreds of bubbles floated like sentient things towards the crows lining the street. Each time one connected with a crow, it faded from view, screeching, I can't work like this! Seeing the effect of the bubbles, Drew started marching towards the giant crow in, the, in yellow pedal boots and a hat. Dipping the wand back in the mix, then back out, Drew blew a long, soft breath, making a bubble of gigantic proportions as she slowly moved towards the creature. The crow flapped her human arms and tried to rush Drew just as the bubble released. The shimmering blue danced towards the target, bouncing on the wind, finally encapsulating the strange being. The crow woman burst the bubble and rushed towards Drew. Drew screamed and blew a spray of smaller bubbles. It didn't do anything to stop the creature. Help! Drew screeched when the creature's arm whipped out to grab her throat. The spiked metal scarf did its job. The hand drew back, and Drew heard the old Finnish woman's laughter over the music playing loud in the air. The crow bent in to peck at Drew, and a red light streamed from the sequins, causing feathers to singe. Finally, a bubble caught the crow in the eye, and the whole thing burst into a viscous liquid pile of paint and fabric. Jasper's slow drawl morphed into Carla's voice. Hey, hey, kid, that's some dream you're having. You okay? Drew sat up on her elbows and squinted in the morning light. A prism glinted red and blue bands of light right in her face. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Did I wake you? Nah, I was up. You ready to paint? Drew sat up hugging her knees. Yeah, I have a pretty fair idea of what I'm going to do. So that's the reading from the edited, though I see I need to edit out imperiously. I use that too much. That's why I read these out loud, guys. Um, I'll change that word, but that's an easy fix. Uh, but that's the short story. I'm not going to spoil the ending for you. It's, it is very amusing. So um, it's a great, great story. Really, really enjoy it. So that dream sequence kind of wrote itself and is so surreal and was so weird. And that yarn store is a real place and all of the characters at the table are people I knew for years when I lived in the never quite made it to charming town called Stanwood, Washington. So these are all fictional stories, but based in a real place and with some real people who serve as inspiration, who I know will enjoy being in my book. 
because they always said, you're going to write a story about me someday. And other characters are completely fictional. So I hope you enjoyed it. And I look forward to seeing you on Twitter in the next section. We'll be talking about why you want to keep your writing fun. And why you want to keep everything fun, to be honest. So I promised to talk about why I took a hiatus and what you need to keep in mind. So yeah, there was a lot of good stuff going on. There's even more good stuff going on. And um, I can't wait till I can do a big reveal on that. It actually doesn't really have to do with writing per se, but it has to do with what I'm going to talk about right now. One of the reasons I ended up having to put the podcast down due to tech issues, you know, due to recording space issues due to life Um, part of it was I'd made the dang thing too serious this is my passion project this is where I get to have so much fun talking to really cool people about what they do about their passion for writing about um, their process about their characters about their plots about life as an author about finally feeling like an author it's so important to connect with other human beings in this world that if you just watch the news or don't filter your social media too much you can be so bogged down by the seriousness of everything and honestly we all need to be in our passion and in our joy You say, how can I be that when the world is going, you know, tits up? Well, if you don't tap into your passion, somebody else is going to tap into you and tell you how to feel and tell you what to do with your life. And uh, I run an organization called Align Network International, and it's been in development and testing for over a decade. We finally LLC'd last week that was one of the reasons I took a break and one of the ways I describe it is I don't care what you believe as long as you know what you believe and you really know it you really know it you don't just believe it because somebody told you to believe it or you don't just believe it because that's the latest meme going around but that you believe it in your heart of hearts and you know when you feel into it that it's your joy it's your passion it's your belief it's your your truth And as writers, it is so important to stay tapped into that instead of getting into the chase for ratings or getting into the chase um, for readers or followers or um, any of the numbers game instead of truly just putting your work out there because you love it. And if one person reads it and halfway likes it, that's great. But you've got to love it. You've got to love it. You're not going to like every word you write, and that's what editing is for. But you got to love your stories. you got to love them. You know, I've been writing since I was a kid, and I've been getting paid to write nonfiction most of my life whether it was nonfiction books, of which I've had a bestseller, or it's been articles, marketing copy, 
you name it. If it's nonfiction, ghostwriting, curriculum, all of that. And I did a lot of that this summer. It's what I do. But fiction, that's my playtime. That's the place in my head that is where I escape to. That's where all those stories are. And when I put them on paper, it's vulnerable. It's um, spine-tingling joy to have these places I go to in my head be described in a way that I recognize. And if other people like them, that's fantastic. If they don't, I honestly do not care. And with the podcast, it needed to be the same thing. And I started caring a lot too much about what other people thought. And I started to feel obligated when I wasn't putting things out or was. And it just, I was like, that's not why I'm doing this. Put it down for a minute. Just like when a story isn't working out, I put it down for a minute and I come back to it. I go write something else. There's 50 million blog posts that can be written. There's always something else that can be done. Just put it down when it starts to feel like pressure. I read on Twitter so much the agony all of you go through. Um, And not all of you, but so many. Where they forget their joy. They forget their love, their lust for words. Their lust for a good plot. The very first episode of this podcast where I didn't think a single person was ever going to listen to it. I talked about life being an erotic journey and not in the way most people think of as erotica. Most people, basically erotica is boiled down to porn anymore, but real erotica is sensual and so is living. It's what life is about and we are passionate beings if we are creators Don't let the numbers game get in your head. Don't let the pressure to perform kill your joy. It happens to a lot of artists. It happens to musicians. It happens to writers. Uh, I've been as a musician as well. And when it isn't fun, take a breath, take a break, and come back and make it fun. Don't give it up. Don't ever give it up because the world needs your passionate voice. They need you in a world where a dystopian novel is the reality. I urge you to write better handbooks for leaders because guess what? Those people are reading the dystopian fiction and they're playing it out in front of our eyes. Write something worth living and don't let your passion die don't dismay don't despair don't let life overwhelm you and if it does just take a break take some breaths and come back to it just like we're doing here in season two because a good friend of mine reminded me over the last couple of weeks that dimming your passion because other people are uncomfortable from your enthusiasm is stupid stop hanging out with those people hang out with people who get it and those people are people I hang out with 
So that's why I, I shut my podcast down. It's, it got to be too much. I put too much pressure on myself for something that I didn't ever want to have be pressure. I just wanted to read stories. And if anybody listened, that was great. I actually just like to read. I like to read aloud. It's been one of my favorite things to do since I was a little girl, besides read inside my head and write stories. So the world needs you. The world needs your passion. The world needs your voice right now. It needs your fairy tales. It needs your love stories. It needs it needs a damn sight better than what it's getting right now. So you can thank my friend who's a wacky, amazing, stalwart, insightful Chinese shaman who said, you're not being true to you if you're not doing the things you love. I was like, very wise, very true. You're right. I need to get back at it. So thank you again for listening. And I'm just going to keep recording podcasts. And if you show up, that's great. But for God's sake, don't put pressure on your writing. Just get the stories out there. I'm LA Rivers. And on this hot, August night, the last August of 2019. I thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.